Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. This is our first episode of 2023, our first recorded episode. We recorded our, our last one of 2022, which ran, I think, on the 5th. Was it, Bruce? It was the beginning of this week, whenever that was. It's the end of the week now. Right. So, so we're <laughs> we're somewhere in early January right now. It's a time space. They call that the time space continuum. Yeah, yeah just... Uh, as long as you, as long as you're listening, folks, you'll be, you'll be okay. Uh, my name is Jeff Benjamin, uh, co-hosting with Bruce Kelly. Hello. Today we are talking with Michael Hunstead, Chief Investment Officer for Global Equities at Northern Trust Asset Management. We're talking to Michael about some research that he did, and I, I think it's a, it's either an annual or a semi-annual thing that they do. Uh, they put out something called the Risk Report. And the risk report—it's fascinating stuff for us. Uh, us kind of. This is um, pretty heady, Jeff, isn't it? I mean, I was reading your story, and it kind of struck me as an uncommon report. Really, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not a portfolio construction guy like you at all. I would never claim to be, but you know, it's—it seems like pretty heady stuff that that they're doing. It here. is. It is. It, and to me, it was interesting uh, because of the fact that it's—it's it's basically analyzing the way institutional portfolios are are constructed and managed and and they're supposed to be the smart guys yeah and and, uh, and showing that you know even they uh are uh, prone to making some mistakes but we're gonna let michael uh draw all those conclusions uh because he's the professional michael how you doing thanks for being here great well thanks for having me so tell us a little bit about yourself how long you been at uh northern trust asset management yeah, so I have been at Northern Trust for 10 years, uh, always in the equity team. Uh, currently, manage my team manages more than $600 billion in, in assets for, for clients of all types uh, all around the world. So every geography, uh, every client type, uh, which I think shows through in, in the risk report. I said that I think this report is done every year or every other year. What's the What's the history of this report. I, I can read it off the findings that I'm looking at right now that it, it looks at over 1,300 strategies, uh, 250 billion plus in equity portfolio assets, and 88 institutional investors are all comprised in this research. But what's the, what's the background on the report? Yeah. So for the last decade, we have been offering our clients something we call a portfolio factor analysis, which is really a, a diagnostic. It's a deep dive into the client's own portfolio, analyzing the drivers of risk and return uh, to kind of identify what is the health of the portfolio? Are there things that are unexpected? Are there uh, sort of issues with the portfolio that can be addressed? So we've been doing this for a long time. Only relatively recently, within the last few years, have we compiled all of these studies or all of these uh, portfolio factor analyses into a study. And, and the reason that we did that was, you know, time and time again, as we're doing these portfolio factor analyses, we kept seeing the same issues repeat themselves over and over and over and over. And the six findings of the six themes or discoveries of the risk report are really a, a synopsis of things that we have seen many, many, many times across many different client types, 
Um, it's just, it's, it's so pervasive. These themes are almost the rule rather than the exception. Yeah. And, and I want to try and I don't think we're going to be able to get into a lot of depth on each of these six themes, but I want to at least touch on each of them. <laughs> and, and I want to start with the first one that's, it's, I don't know if it's first because that's the way you put it, or if it's first because it's most important, but I found it to be the most interesting, the, the uncon uncompensated versus compensated risk that you're seeing in these portfolios. I mean, to me, that's reading through the report and talking to you, it's clear that we've come a long way from our, our grandfather's portfolio construction model, where the, the you know, the idea of risk uh, balancing return is, is far and away ancient history, right? Yeah. Jeff, excuse me, just for a second. Should we, and Michael, look, can I just say what the six risks are first to give the listeners kind of sure they're the six key findings not the six risks. the six key themes yeah. excuse me yeah exactly so you have this is according to jeff's story you have uncompensated risks which jeff's just managed cancellation effect hidden risks impact of style investing over diversification and timing manager changes right michael let's let's talk about that the concept of uncompensated versus compensated risk. I mean, that that's, that's, it's a little bit nuanced, right? Yeah. You know, when you think about it, when you took your finance 101 class, you know, you, you learn that if you want to earn more return, you have to take more risk, right? Mm -hmm. Or the, the corollary is if you take more risk, you will earn more return. But to your point, that's sort of your grandfather's approach to thinking about portfolio construction. We know that today, we know that that's not the case at all. That when you look into any asset market, whether it's equities or fixed income or anything else, we can decompose the asset market into many different kinds of risk. Some of those risks are compensated, meaning they do come with return. Many of those risks are not compensated. So within the equity space, things like sector bets, country bets, currency bets, uh, you know, a lot of macro exposures are, you know, they add to risk, but they don't add to return. Those are the uncompensated risks. So we, you know, when we dive into this report, it's very important to distinguish between the two and really to recognize that the rule of thumb that we all kind of learned when we were in finance 101, you know, more risk equals more return not necessarily the case. So how do you know as a portfolio manager uh, where you're taking risk that is, I guess, good risk or potentially compensated risk? Or, or what's yeah, a strategy all, that you would use to, to lean more heavily on compensated risk? It's all about precision in your data and your analytics. So today we have so much better information at our fingertips. So you, know, so you, you can take an equity market and you can take a, an off-the-shelf risk model, uh, and we can decompose that equity market into hundreds of different risks. Depending on which model you're using, it could be 200, it could be 250. Uh, but all these different components that roll up into the aggregate equity risk, but it's about precision. It's about being able to analyze what's actually in the portfolio and then ultimately react to that to control that. So precision is absolutely key. Can you give us an, an example of, of where uncompensated risk might be in a portfolio or might find itself in a portfolio? Yeah, sure. So 
you know, think about you know, what's going on right now. You have a lot of volatility in equity markets. Um, a lot of investors are becoming more defensive in their posture in the equity space. Uh, many of them increasing their allocation or exposure to the defensive sectors like utilities, real estate, consumer staples. Well, in doing that, you might think, well, I'm, I'm you know, reducing risk. I'm, I'm lowering the volatility of my portfolio. But what you may not realize is that you're taking these very large sector bets, you know, utilities, real estate, consumer staples, which uh, again, sectors, not necessarily a compensated form of risk, but you're also, what you're doing is, you know, probably inadvertently, um, you didn't recognize the fact that these sectors are also the bond proxy sectors. They have a lot of interest rate sensitivity associated with them. So you thought you were getting low volatility in equities. What you actually did was you exposed yourself to a few different, you know, a few sectors, but you also added a lot of duration or interest rate risk to your equity portfolio. So you thought you were getting low volatility. What you may end up getting is, is quite high volatility because rates are changing, rates are moving, uh, and that is trans transmitting itself into your portfolio. So um, you have to be really, really careful about how you position your equity portfolios because you, you may think you may be getting one thing, but you're actually getting something completely different. And that unexpected risk, if you will, or that even unintended risk can really come back to bite you. Let's go to the um, the second uh, kind of finding here, the underlying portfolio holdings uh, canceling each other out and hurting performance. That sounds like over-diversification, but I know over-diversification is coming up next or later, right? <laughs> so Yeah, two different flavors there. So when we think about compensated and uncompensated risks. And by the way, I, I think the, the, the grand finding of the first, uh, first theme is that these portfolios had twice as much uncompensated risk as compensated risk. So when you think about balancing risk in your portfolio, you know, as an industry, we're doing a, a pretty poor job of, of eliminating uncompensated risk from our portfolio. Okay. Well, the second theme or the second finding is about this cancellation. So the common reaction is, well, maybe I have this uncompensated risk in my portfolio, but I'm going to deal with that through diversification. I'm going to put multiple managers together and some managers will have an overweight to certain sectors. Other managers will have an underweight, maybe have an overweight to certain countries. Other managers will have an underweight and it'll, it'll all come out in the wash. Well, if you think about the equity space or any asset you know, class as through the uncompensated and compensated risk lens, then you think about diversification. Well, well what do you want to do? You, you want to diversify away the uncompensated risk, right? You want to keep the stuff that you're getting paid to take, right? And you, you know, the whole idea is getting paid for the risk that you take. Well, you know, Ideally, what we would like to see is that when portfolios are constructed and when diversification takes place, you're diversifying away uncompensated exposure, you're keeping compensated. But in fact, the exact opposite is taking place. We find that across these portfolios, a lot of times it's the good risk that's 
you know, being thrown out with the bathwater, right? So you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You're diversifying away the good risk. You're keeping a lot of the bad. That's part of the reason why there is twice as much uncompensated risk in these portfolios as compensated. The, the diversification that we're, we're going for or that we're achieving in the portfolio is not the best kind. We're diversifying away the wrong thing. I mean, but these are these are institutional. I can't say this enough. These are institutional portfolio managers. These aren't, you know, some guy day trading trying to build a diverse portfolio. How how are how are these things lost on these people? Yeah, and I think it, a lot of it goes to again these sort of antiquated rules of thumb, of you know, more risk equals more return. All diversification is a good thing. You know, those are kind of the two things that we we all kind of learned or absorbed over the years. But when you have more precision at your fingertips, again, when you talk about diversification, it's really about precision. You can kind of see that, yeah, we're we're kind of getting there, but we're we're missing a lot of it. And that's what concerns me. Even these, you know, institutional investors, the assumption is they have all the data and all the analytics at their fingertips. That's not necessarily the case. Um, you know, a lot of times these, you know, these institutional asset owners have relatively small staff. They may not necessarily have the most sophisticated tools. They don't necessarily know that this is going on. So this is this is why the study is so interesting. Is that you would think that these are the kind of clients that could uh, could solve these problems, uh, but by and large, again, they are very pervasive across uh, all client types. What do you mean by hidden risk? I know we're, we're we've kind of focused on risk a lot, and that's what this is all about. But I mean, yeah. hidden risk sounds like it's a you know well uh, obviously it's probably uncompensated, but uh, what's hidden? You took yeah. my question, Jeff. <laughs> so uh, you know, a lot of times, more often than not, when something bad happens to a portfolio, it is typically because. There was an unexpected risk lurking in the background that was unintended and, to your point, uncompensated. So I'll give you an example. Um, a lot of uh, investors are going into value portfolios these days. Value has done very well over the last couple of years. They want to load up on value stocks. Well, um, depending on which sectors are, you know, have the best valuation multiples, uh, you could be exposing yourself to a lot of unintended risks, unintended outcomes. So at certain times, for example, energy stocks can appear to be very cheap relative to the rest of the market. Um, but what you may not realize is that if you're just going headlong into a sector like energy, uh, you have a big commodity price risk inherent in your portfolio. So you thought you were getting value stocks, but what you may end up getting in, in that particular example is a, a, a very heavy oil or commodity price exposure. Um, other macroeconomic exposures like inflation or growth or currencies, et cetera, uh, all can whipsaw portfolio. And if you're not careful about how you construct your portfolio, even though you're going after something that's potentially a source of alpha, um, if you're not careful about how you or put that portfolio together, whether it's macro or sector or you know something else seeping into the portfolio can have a big impact on returns, on performance. 
And again, if you don't know that's going on, if you don't understand fully the risk that you're taking, um, that can be a, a major cause of consternation. Bruce, you want to take the impact of style finding and grill him? <laughs> well, first, I, I just wanted to cite your article, Jeff, because I think it's a really nice article uh, for our listeners to, um, again, because this is like heady stuff. You know what I mean? Like I was saying, and you do uh, such a nice job of kind of presenting it, uh, you know, in, in a concise manner. It's from December 15th. If you if people go online uh, to investmentnews.com, it's from December 15th. Jeff Benjamin is the byline. And um, the, the headline is Northern Trust Report Upends Traditional Way of Looking at Risks Versus Returns. And I, I think kind of the just two things um, more than these these different areas, uh, the six slices of the pie that Northern Trust has here. What kind of risk is, or what kind of effect in, in your universe um, here is the uh, the Congress's inability to to vote for a Speaker of the House? To, how did, how does that where does that fall in your universe, Michael? And then secondly, what is you know what's kind of surprising? or most interesting about all this stuff to you personally? Uh, I guess I would have to say that uh, to the extent that there's an embedded political risk in your portfolio that may be expressed right now, um, you know, it, political risks are particularly potent in uh, non-U.S. portfolios, although we're seeing it more and more in the U.S. as well. Uh, so whether it's something like you know Ukraine and Russia or something domestic, uh, you know that realistically is a source of risk that may not necessarily even be measured within a traditional risk model. So I think that's you know a, an example of is that more fixed income or equities or or emerging markets or like what kind of we tend to see more sort of political oriented risks. Uh, in, in emerging markets, just because that's where, whether it's China or Russia or, um, you know, some of the other sort of South American countries that have had uh, political issues over the last few decades, um, you, you see much more of that in the emerging market space, some certainly in developed markets. Um, you know, the Speaker of the House... Uh, I guess Brexit, right? Yeah, Brexit is a great example. Yeah, absolutely. Um, some of them are relatively fleeting risks, uh, but some of them have a very long duration associated with them. So uh, I, I think in emerging market space, that's a very, very real you know, source of risk. Some of that is represented by country exposure or region exposure, which you can quantify. But within a country itself, uh, absolutely, there can be political risks as well. Would that be considered hidden risk when you have something like what Bruce was talking about? The fact that we're at, at least at this point on January 5th, we do not, we're still uh, no uh, Speaker of the House has been elected. No Speaker of the House. Yeah. <laughs> is that a Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, uh, to, you know, a hidden risk is something you didn't anticipate that is affecting the performance of your portfolio, right? Um, now, most investors, they know about a fairly good cross-section of risks, but to the extent that there is something that creeps in that is impacting performance that we didn't really think about, we didn't really control for, absolutely, that is a hidden risk. 
And, you know, I think that's a great example of we don't even know all the hidden risks that we're taking. You know, um, we, we can try to control for as many as we possibly can. Uh, to some extent, controlling for countries and currencies does limit some of that political risk in your portfolio, uh, at least the sort of international. Uh, but the domestic stuff is, is, is hard to do. And I, I think that's a good example of why this process is so important. Uh, because if you're sort of naive about how you think about risk in your portfolio, there could be dozens, if not hundreds of risks you're not even thinking about. Market volatility can have a dramatic impact on clients, but this also represents an opportunity. As a wealth management partner, LPL Financial helps advisors and institutions implement more robust financial planning strategies with clients. Dr. Jeffrey Roach, Chief Economist at LPL Research, shares his insights on the markets and how financial professionals can deepen their relationships with clients and help them feel more prepared. I think one of the things uh, it's helpful to think about is, you know, this is this is a long-term scenario. It's about having a plan, executing the plan, sticking with the plan, not, you know, trying to change plans midstream, you know, looking about long-term, long-term opportunities, long-term goals. To hear the rest of the conversation and learn more about planning for the year ahead, visit the LPL Financial Newsroom at lpl.com slash newsroom. Let's let's go to uh, this over diversification point here. This is to me kind of interesting because it's I can imagine a lot of people, especially maybe less sophisticated investors, just see you know if you're you know if this portfolio manager is good, three more is better. But I, I know Michael, you've got some good examples of over diversification, and I think you told me one time when you see ten or more portfolio managers you know that there's going to be some over-diversification, right? Yeah, so it's all about how many managers or strategies are in your lineup. You know, it, Generally speaking, you know, when I look at a portfolio and I see that there's 10, 15, 20, and sometimes more, sometimes many more managers in the lineup, it's almost inevitable. You know, these managers are doing different things. Therefore, they're tending to take offsetting positions. So manager A may be overweight stock one, manager B may be underweight stock one, or maybe overweight a certain country and other managers underweight, you know, that country, so on and so forth. So the important thing to keep in mind is you're paying these managers to take active positions, to, to, to take, you know, their desired exposures. But then when you put a whole bunch of managers together that are potentially offsetting each other, again, you're, you're you know, essentially eliminating a lot of that return potential, right? And the amount of you know, over-diversification because of a large number of managers can be very, very significant. You know, within this study, we can see that you know, in some cases, 70, 80, 90, or even more percent of the active positions of your managers are being offset. So think about you're, you're, you're paying your, your managers to take these active positions. 90% of it is being you know, offset or, or eliminated. Uh, you're left with 10% of your active positions, but 100% of the fee. 
Um, that's, that's a tough position to be in. So um, the number of managers in your portfolio invariably has an influence on over-diversification. The more managers you have, the worse this problem tends to be. I got a couple of instances where you have 100 or more managers, believe it or not. And essentially what this, this uh, portfolio was at the end of the day was the benchmark. In this case, the MSCI World Benchmark. An expensive uh, benchmark. An expensive yeah. benchmark, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you're paying full fee, but you're getting the benchmark performance. Benchmark performance minus the fee, of course. See, this is something that I could see happening a lot in 401k plans, where it, you you'll have you know people that are contributing to these plans, and they you know they think, well, you know, this manager's good and this manager's good and this manager's good and I'll just buy them all. And pretty soon they've got a whole bunch of different funds that are, as you say, offsetting one another, right? Or Absolutely. some positions are offsetting one another. And, and I'll give you a, an example that's almost a bit comedic, but um, it occurred three times. So we have 88 uh, portfolios that are involved in this study that occurred three times where a, an asset owner had both the Russell 1000 value and the Russell 1000 growth index in their portfolio at cap weight, market cap weight. Well, do you know what you get when you put the Russell 1000 value and the Russell 1000 growth together at market cap weight? You get exactly, exactly, <laughs> you know, precisely. But you're actually paying yeah. more. You know, you, you're paying more in fees to get the growth and value components because you think, well, I should have some growth exposure and I should have some value exposure, and that's a good thing, right? Um, but when I put those two things together, I have no growth, I have no value, I have the benchmark exactly, precisely, but I have this higher fee, and that's that's an example. And again, institutional investors, you know, very sophisticated, but these are these are the kind of things that we uncover all the time. But see, to me, that's where I it, it, it gets close to that line to me of saying, um, all right, you got to take a stand. You got to be either growth or value in this instance. All right. Uh, why both? And why would somebody, especially a sophisticated portfolio manager that understands growth and value, have these obviously balancing positions in there? Why not just by the the Russell 1000. Is there, can you think of a rationale for that? I mean, I can understand how it can happen at, at less sophisticated investor levels, but I, I don't understand why somebody managing, you know, a giant foundation or something like that would have that. Well, if you were sort of educated in the 1990s around kind of how to construct portfolios, so 1993, uh, the, the style box implementation comes out, right? So if you remember the style box, you have value, uh, blend uh, growth, you have small, mid, large, sort of nine components uh, across the, the, those two, two spectrums, two dimensions. And you know what you're supposed to do is kind of fill that out. You're supposed to have a large cap value manager, a large cap growth, small cap value, small cap growth, you know, mid cap value, mid cap growth, so on and so forth. And so we see a lot of evidence of that. About half of the participants in this study had evidence of a style factor orientation to the portfolio. 
Um, and I think, so, you know, you kind of think, okay, well, I need to, you know, circa 1993, I was instructed to construct my portfolio in this manner. All right, let's fill out the style box. I'm going to put the, you know, Russell 1000 value in my value, large cap value box, Russell 1000 growth in my large cap growth box. I'm good. Um, not realizing that you're, you're not really doing anything. So I think it's, again, it's an application of an antiquated, call it a rule of thumb or portfolio construction methodology that we're following the rules of the style box, but we're not really doing anything at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, again, a lot of evidence of that kind of, uh, you know, style box implementation, almost inevitably, what we see is just a lot of the active exposures being thrown out, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Michael, is there any, uh, can you characterize in any way the type of institutional investor who is more susceptible to these kinds of uh, errors or shortcomings or kind of misguided thinking? Is it like small municipal, um, uh, say, pension plans or teacher retirement plans? They Because teacher retirements, right, have been um, scrutinized recently for uh, having uh, some of them, right, for having uh, annuities uh, jammed down um, teachers' throats and, and the like. Is, are these big plans, little plans? How can you, can you characterize it at all for us? It's across the board. And that's what's so interesting is that there isn't really a, and, and we have, you know, we break out the study by client type. So you have sovereign wealth funds and superannuation funds at the kind of upper end of the spectrum in terms of size. Uh, you have foundations and endowments, you know, public funds, maybe family offices on the smaller end of the spectrum. Uh, but none of them are immune from these kinds of issues. Uh, in general, though, I would say that it's, you know, in, in some sense, the larger plans tend to put less emphasis on security selection and more emphasis on these compensated risks or compensated style factors purely because of their size. Um, but it's not necessarily a, you know, kind of the 100% uh, conviction on that. It's, it's more of that in general, everybody has is making these same, you know, portfolio construction uh, errors, if you will, or 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 uh, they're having the same problems. Um, the bigger the portfolio, it seems to be there is slightly less of these issues going on, but emphasis on slightly. You know that uh, again, the the key finding is that everybody's got the same issues at the end of the day. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, let's uh, let's talk about the final, I guess, key finding here: the uh, timing manager changes. This seems kind of obvious because it seems like it goes uh, to the to the point of uh, market timing, but it's really not. Is it? It's not exactly that, right? Yeah, not exactly. Um, what's really interesting, and it's, to me, this is you know personally, I think one of the more interesting findings because you know that it's true but now you have the data. So here, here's what we're saying. You know, when asset owners hire their managers, they tend to hire managers based off a track record, usually a three to five year track record, right? And 
almost invariably, they're going to hire managers that are doing really, really well. So they're, they're you know, shooting the lights out from a performance perspective. But what we find is that after that manager is hired, they tend to underperform that track record significantly. Almost in a sense as though you, you know, hire the manager at the peak of their performance, you kind of hold them into the trough. Now, what's also very interesting is that after these asset owners fire that same manager, those managers tend to then outperform again. So it's almost as if we're buying into the managers at exactly the wrong time, holding them and selling them at exactly the wrong time. This is kind of the classic return chasing wealth destruction behavior that is remarkably pervasive across the industry. And it's not just us that's studying this. There have been some really, really interesting papers uh, that have been published on this. So we find evidence of the same behavior in our study, that when uh, security selection, when uh, stock picking is doing really well, uh, these portfolios tend to uh, increase their exposure to security selection or idiosyncratic risk uh, at exactly the wrong times. So it's, it's as if you're chasing this performance behavior and almost inevitably you're not going to come out with a, a positive outcome as a result of that. So um, it's just one more piece of evidence to support the idea that we have to be very cognizant of where returns are coming from. And when we think about, you know, hey, uh, there's this manager here that really shot the lights out over the last few years. Well, why did they do that? Did they do that because of something that can be persistent into the future? Or was it, were you riding some risk that's more cyclical and you just happen to be on the right side of that? Well, how would you think uh, somebody would get around uh, buying high when it comes to a manager, because if you're looking to move into a new style or strategy or some kind of exposure, wouldn't you think that the the search would start with the best past performance or at least include the best, most recent performance? To an extent, but you have to understand which component of the performance was really the driver. And I think that's the key. So, you know, let, let's look at a, a growth manager, as an example, um, you know, prior to a couple of years ago, growth managers were really doing well. But why did they do well? Did you know? Did an individual growth manager do well because they had really good security selection and found the best of the best stocks among growth stocks, or do they do well simply because they were exposed to the technology sector or healthcare? Uh, or you know the U.S. over Europe, which happened to be better from a growth perspective. In one case, that is a repeatable, potentially repeatable source of alpha. In the other, it's much more cyclical. So if I'm really good at selecting stocks and I can show that year after year after year, well, that might be a repeatable source of alpha. That's what you're really trying to harness. If it's just you've exposed yourself to a certain sector or a certain country, a certain region, well, that's something altogether different. 
uh, we need to understand what's driving the performance of each of our managers. And again, this gets back to the precision argument. Uh, until we can do that, it's really hard to look at a manager and just say, okay, well, they outperformed the benchmark by 400 basis points that last year. That's a good thing. Well, it may not be that good of a thing. <laughs> you know, uh, we, we have to be really careful about sort of assigning, uh, you know, positive or negative feelings to a manager until we really know what was the underlying driver. Was it true skill? Or was it just the fact that you had some other exposures that, that happened to pay off? It certainly makes uh, portfolio construction sound a lot more difficult talking to you, Michael. Um, I, <laughs> I'm wondering, <laughs> you know, putting together your 401k plan is, um, menu is one thing, but uh, for financial advisors, uh, it, it almost makes the case for outsourcing this stuff. Well, and I want to I stress something that everything that we're talking about, even though this study is focused on institutional portfolios. Um, it applies at any level, whether it's a 401k or sort of an advisor-driven portfolio. Um, we see these problems time and time again. And I, I think the message is, if you can't be, if you don't have the tools, the data to be very precise about the risk that you're taking, then yes, you know, I, I think there is some call to, um, outsource a little bit. Uh, but, you know, the, the good news is that all the six discoveries or themes or findings of the risk report can be addressed. There's nothing here that uh, cannot be corrected through precision. Uh, but you're, you're absolutely correct and you're absolutely true statement that, you know, when you think about it, Anybody can form a portfolio of value stocks or quality stocks or we you know whatever your your you know your orientation might be. But to do that without exposing yourself to all these uncompensated risks, hidden risks, you know, diversification issues is very challenging. And you know, that's why uh, we have so much emphasis on analytics and data today, because we need to make sure that we can address these issues. Where um, there's a link in my story that Bruce referenced earlier to this report, but where can our uh, listeners find this? Go to Northern. It's free, right? It is free, absolutely. It's uh, northerntrust.com. Uh, yeah, obviously, if it's in your your story as well. And by the way, very very well done in the story. I will I will add my uh, my, my accolades <laughs> thank you. there. And thank um, you, Bruce. Yeah, for those comments. But uh, sure. Uh, northerntrust.com uh, also has a link, uh, and it's been updated for 2022. So we're going to uh, update this study every year. Um, and I should mention this. So we, we did it last year. We did it again this year. Uh, mm -hmm. No change in findings. <laughs> uh, yeah. All of the, the themes, <laughs> the discoveries remained unchanged. Uh, there wasn't a material difference between this year and last year which again is, I think, some indication of how kind of pervasive, not only pervasive from a geographical client type, but uh, through time, we've, we've continued to see these issues. Yeah, I mean, obviously different economies, different economic yeah. cycles to some degree. But yeah, I would encourage people to go and, and track down this report and it's, we've just scratched the surface here. It's, it's really comprehensive, but it's really easy to follow and easy to read. And there's a lot of good stuff here. Um, I learned a lot and it, it scared me a lot too. Uh, made me think that I'm, 
you know, I got to go back and look at everything I do with my own portfolio. So we thank you, Michael, for being here. Really good stuff. Um, really enlightening. We'll, we'll keep following your research and have you on here again to enlighten us some more. Oh, great. Well, thank you. Appreciate the time. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, launching every Monday. It's another episode of the Investment News Podcast. We want to thank our special guest this week, Michael Hunstead of Northern Trust. We also want to thank Angelica Hester, our producer. You can find the podcast, of course, at investmentnews.com. You can also find us on platforms like Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. Our Twitter handles are at Benji Ryder for Jeff, at BD News Guy for me. Stay tuned. We'll be talking to you next week.